This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Mouths are watering, lemons are squeezing, and stomachs are growling. Of all the ads you see on TV or on billboards or on the sides of buses, an overwhelming number seem to be for food. This is our masterpiece. Boar's Head Oven Gold Turkey. Eggs and sausage. Hotcakes and butter. Morning. Icy Cokes in frosted glasses. Fajitas sizzling on the grill. At Longhorn, what's in season matters. A guy biting into the perfect hamburger on a sesame seed bun. Peak ingredients perfectly cooked. But of course, you know, in real life, these foods don't look like they do in the ads. I'm here with a question from Isabel M. from Toronto, Ontario. She asks, why does your food look different in the advertising than what's in the store? It's a great question, Isabel. We get asked that a lot. And if you want to come with me, I'm going to take you across the street. We're going to find out a bit more. Come on. In 2012, McDonald's Canada put out this video about the process they go through to photograph one of their burgers. What I'm going to do is introduce you now to Noah, who's our food stylist. And here I think it's important to note that all the ingredients that Noah uses are the exact same ingredients that we use in the restaurant. So The video follows food stylist Noah as he painstakingly selects the perfect slices of onion and pickle. He places them on the burger with tweezers and then precisely melts the cheese just so. So hope I'm just melting down the cheese with my palette knife. Then he picks up a plastic syringe filled with ketchup and applies it with surgical precision. Maybe I'll put mustard, ketchup, actually ketchup, mustard, ketchup. Then they photograph this fancy burger and Photoshop it to perfection. That's nice. They place a picture of a real burger just ordered at McDonald's next to the image of this stylized burger. And the difference is striking. That's reporter Danny Lewis. I would like to eat the burger that Noah styled and assembled. The other one, not so much. The last hundred years or so of food advertising have been shaped by this one simple fact. Real food looks bad on camera. Shooting food and even photographing food has always been fiendishly difficult in advertising. This is Terry O'Reilly. For decades, he was an ad man, and he now hosts a radio show about advertising called Under the Influence. Terry says the challenges of shooting food are obvious. First of all, food is boring to look at when it's just sitting on a plate. Because food is generally static. Then, when you subject it to the hot lights of a studio... The food starts to wilt. It's just simple science. And so advertisers have had to constantly walk this fine line between enhancement and fakery, trying all kinds of tricks to get food to look good. For the first half of the 20th century, well after photography was widely adopted, advertisers in magazines and newspapers relied heavily on illustration. The reason illustration was the preferred method was because you could completely control an illustration. In other words, there's no lighting issues, there's no wilting food issues. A marketer could really completely dictate what that food would look like right down to the, to the strand of pasta with an illustrator. Then TV came along in the 1950s and 60s, and advertisers faced a whole new set of challenges. I'm going to show you how McDonald's builds a, a Big Mac sandwich. A lot of them didn't really understand how to shoot food in a compelling way. In this ad, the hamburger just sits there on the counter while the ingredients get piled on. It starts here with a lightly toasted bun, and then a pure beef hamburger, sizzling hot, 
Without compelling visuals, there'd often be a voiceover just describing the hell out of the food. Listing ingredients, telling you how good it tasted. And a little more sauce just for good flavor. Crisp dill pickles and the sesame seed crown. These early TV ads relied on relatively static shots. Advertisers would use a wide-angle lens mounted on a camera, and it might zoom in and pan a little, but that's about it. There were lots of shots of boxes and labels. The food did just normal food stuff. You might see something being ladled out of a pot. You might see, you know, a spoon serving peas at a dinner table or serving cream corn at a, at a dinner table. So that would be the extent of the motion. On top of the new challenges of television, food advertisers in the late 60s found themselves facing new scrutiny. The Federal Trade Commission was keeping a close eye on TV ads following the now infamous Campbell's Soup Incident of 1968. They were introducing a new brand of soup that had a lot of vegetables in it, but the problem is the vegetables sink to the bottom. So what they did was put a bunch of marbles in the bottom of the bowls just to hoist up the vegetables. When the FTC found out, they threatened Campbell's with legal action. The event led to a new push for truth in advertising. A lot of the old tricks advertisers had relied on in the past were now off the table. No more using glue instead of milk in cereal ads. No more substituting mashed potatoes for ice cream. But in the 1970s, food advertising took a radical turn. Food started moving. And that opened the door to all the fancy tricks we see in ads today. Shrimp executing acrobatic flips. Lobster claws cracking open in slow motion. French fries bouncing across a table. Food wasn't static anymore. Food was flying. And we've got one man to thank for this new aesthetic, Albert Budin. He didn't want anything stagnant. Everything was always moving. He wanted to romance the food or whatever was there in front of him. This is Harry Drennan, who spent years working for Elbert Budin. That's how he met his wife, set director Jackie Canto. I've been in the film business for 35 years, 40. I don't want to say how long. The ads that Canto and Drennan made with Budin until his death in 1996 were unprecedented. Working with clients like McDonald's, Burger King, and Coca-Cola, Budin invented a whole new visual language for food commercials and really pioneered the genre of advertising known as tabletop. Many of the terms and techniques that tabletop directors still use date back to Budin. For example, the prep shot, which tells the backstory of the product, showing all that goes into making the food. You know the ones, chopping a crisp head of lettuce, dicing some juicy red tomatoes. He would make these elaborate banquet things of raw ingredients, and that was his look. And crave shots. That's when the camera zooms way in and lingers on some tantalizing bite of food on the end of a fork. Sexy in a way, you know, it's almost food porn, you know. It's made it all real tactile to you. And the hero shot. A last magnificent look at the food, on the plate, ready to eat. Usually in the final seconds of the advertisement. Buden's big breakthrough was that he didn't just describe the food and promise viewers it tasted good. He made them feel actual hunger with his images. His real thing is just food in itself, its essence, is really sensual. You know what I mean? If you see a hamburger commercial, you you really want to eat a hamburger, and that's the point of it. And I think that's what he introduced. And you'll never see it any other way now. 
Canto and Drennan remember working long days and sometimes long nights to meet Budin's high standards. And to achieve his vision of flying food and mouthwatering close-ups, they had to use a whole bunch of crazy tools. Like giant high-speed cameras that would burn through a thousand feet of film in seconds and make a ton of noise. They'd start shooting and it was like, it's just this all day long. It was something. These cameras were originally designed for the military to film rocket tests. It was used for ballistics, but we were the first ones to do it with food. Thanks to these cameras, Budin could achieve super slow motion effects. He'd take a split second of time and luxuriate in it. He'd have oranges splash through a sheet of water. Condensation would drip down the side of a bottle. In order to get the perfect take, Budin started designing strange Rube Goldberg sort of machines to help him get the job done. These contraptions were called rigs. They ranged from simple spouts for liquid to machines that would drop pancakes into a perfect stack to catapults that would fling oranges across the studio. And sure, the production team could have just thrown the oranges by hand. But with a rig, they could get the exact same results over and over, which meant fewer takes, which meant less time and less money spent. It also meant that they could achieve a certain level of precision and artistry. It was so much prettier than other people's work, as far as I could see. He was beautiful at lighting. And then with uh, once he got into all the movement, I mean, he was, a, he was ahead of the curve. Lights roll, Steve. Roll it. Out, ready, and action. No, I missed it. Try it again. To see how Budin's techniques are still being used today, Danny went to MacGuffin Films in New York. Okay, so just quick descriptions. MacGuffin does commercials for Red Lobster, Olive Garden, Starbucks, and a bunch of other restaurants. The day Danny was there, they were shooting a chicken sandwich. So they are shooting a chicken sandwich. Uh, hero shot, it looks like, uh, on a black slate with a little tray of chili peppers and garlic and stuff. A hand model stands near the edge of the table where the sandwich is displayed. So now they're doing the crowning? Crowning means the hand model takes the bun and puts it on top of the sandwich. Just presses it there, alluringly, then takes the crown off. In between shots, a guy comes on with a fan brush uh, to brush any crumbs off the top of the chicken. Then the crown goes back on again. Would you mind just uh, putting the crown back on that sandwich, please? It took them all day to film this sandwich. The whole shoot precisely orchestrated, relying on highly technical tools. Downstairs in MacGuffin's prop room, there are all sorts of rigs sitting in storage, a lot like the ones that Budin developed. But these are way more high-tech. Riggers today use lasers and sensors and pre-programmed motors. And depending on the shot or the rig, there can be some intense physics to take into account. Like if you're trying to slice an onion in two while it's flying through the air. We break down the elements. So we, we know we've got to get a, an onion to a certain height. This is Anthony de Roberts. He's a special effects technician at MacGuffin Films, and he designed a special rig just to get this shot. Then everything's computer controlled. So when the onion's in the right spot, these two sharp knives come through, split the onion, and leave you with the slice down the middle. And slices of onion artfully tumbling across a table. Classic prep shot. 
But while Buden may have introduced rigs and action to tabletop, some directors like MacGuffin's Nick Fugelstad are trying to get away from Buden's fantastical dreamscapes of flying shrimp and oranges. I think that's a little bit of an older point of view. For Nick Fugelstad, the idealized images of food that Buden tried to bring to his ads just don't cut it in a world that's now totally saturated with food porn. While Buden's commercials often zoomed in so close to food that you couldn't see the space around it, tabletop directors like Fugelstad now frame their food in a space that you might see out in the world, like at a restaurant or a barbecue. You know, when you dig into a lasagna, do you want it to sauce to go all over the place? We need a taco, is stuff going to fall out? Yeah, so let's shoot that. You know, let it, the flavors mix. It's all right, it's what tastes good. But the thing to remember is this. On the set of a food commercial, everything... Everything is highly orchestrated and contrived, even if the ultimate effect feels somewhat natural. Because a 30-second TV spot by a firm like MacGuffin can cost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's got to do one thing to make it all worthwhile. Sell a lot of food. I would say the number one rule in food advertising is that the first taste is always with the eyes. So you're trying to create a shot that makes somebody's uh, salivate. This is Terry O'Reilly again, and he's fascinated by the links people go to sell something. He tells a story about working on a commercial for a hamburger company and watching an actor do take after take, biting into a hamburger and then gazing into the camera with a look of total satisfaction on his face. Then you cut and then there's the spit pail right beside the actor, and then they just spit it right into the pail. You know, cut. And, it, and, you, have, and you watch that happen 40 times or 30 times or 20 And it's so hilarious to me, just the, the mechanics of advertising. The illusion and the reality of creating it, that's exactly it in a nutshell. Invisible was produced this week by Danny Lewis, Delaney Hall, and Avery Truffleman. With Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Sharif Youssef, Kurt Colstead, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to Terry O'Reilly, who hosts Under the Influence on the CBC. We'll have a link to it on our website. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported by Slack, the best messaging app for teams. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services that you use every day. Their mission is to make people's working life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. Instead of a hodgepodge of email, texts, and IMs, Slack brings all of your communication into specific channels that make sense and are easily searchable. 99PI just couldn't run without Slack at this point. We love it. Slack is free to use for as long as you want, but they do have paid plans with additional features and more powerful functionality. Anyone who visits slack.com slash 99 will get $100 in credits they can use whenever they decide to upgrade to any paid plan. Seriously, it makes work better, it makes your life better and more fun. Go to slack.com slash 99. Support is also provided by FreshBooks. If you're anything like me, you'll understand when I say that invoicing clients is the kind of task that actually inspires procrastination. It doesn't actually make any logical sense because invoices are the things that get me paid, yet I still avoid them like the plague. But I've found a better way. Our friends at FreshBooks have made it their mission to create a really easy way for freelancers and small business owners to craft and send polished, professional-looking invoices in seconds. 
To try FreshBooks free for 30 days, go to freshbooks.com slash 99PI and enter 99% invisible in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX exists because of the generosity of our listeners, the Knight Foundation, and MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, when African farmers tried every kind of conventional fence to keep hungry elephants from eating their crops, they developed a design solution that makes your brain buzz with its ingenuity. They created invisible beehive fences to ward off peckish pachyderms. Environmentally friendly with benefits. You can get a link to Kurt Kolstad's story about this on the always interesting 99PI newsletter, which you can subscribe to at 99pi.org. But if you want to send interesting newsletters of your own, go to MailChimp.com. Okay, I hope you're all still listening, because this is really important. There is something huge happening in Radiotopia. We are on a podcast. That is our open call-out for a new show to join our tribe. We're looking for diverse talent, fresh voices, something we've never heard before. So if you're eager to make a narrative-driven, sandwich show on a subject you really could imagine exploring over tens or hundreds of episodes, you should enter PodQuest. Finalists will win cash, prizes, and will work with our producers to develop pilot episodes. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Go to radiotopia.fm for full details and to enter. And hurry up, because all entries are due on April 17th. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. All of us are on Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. But to find out more about this story, including cool pictures and links, and listen to all the episodes of 99% Invisible, you must go to 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo.